Hey, this is Noah Levine, founder of Against the Stream, Refuge Recovery, and Dharma Punks. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast. I hope you're enjoying the Dharma. Together, may we create a positive change on this planet. If you feel moved to leave a donation, there's a link in the show notes. May our paths cross soon. Welcome, everybody. Thanks for joining. Regular Monday night meditation class here at Against the Stream Meditation Center in Venice, California. Happy to see so many familiar faces, friends and family, and welcome to all the new people. If you're new, we meet every Monday night. This class is an ongoing drop-in Buddhist meditation group. And we've been on Zoom most of the year when the restrictions on gathering lift. We will meet in person here in Venice Monday nights. I'll continue to do the Zoom groups, I think. I've always wanted to figure out how to do both uh, in person and allow the people from out of town, out of the local area to also be able to be here at class. So one of the good things about the pandemic is that we've all learned how to utilize Zoom and such uh, meeting rooms. And so, uh, I intend to continue to do it this way, even when the human beings return to the meditation center, if and when it feels like sometimes, <laughs> if and when that happens. Great, so we'll begin with a period of sitting meditation and then we'll have some lecture and discussion on a Buddhist topic. We are spending these first months of the year uh, doing commentary on my book, Heart of the Revolution, a Buddha's radical teachings on forgiveness, compassion and kindness. So we'll continue with the, that topic, heart, heart practice, developing a wise, compassionate heart. And then we'll have time for some uh, discussion if I don't go on and on <laughs> in my Dharma talk. We should have some time for some dialogue. So uh, find a place to sit, a way to be, a posture that is upright and relaxed. Take a moment to settle into the meditation posture. It doesn't matter so much how you sit, it's okay to be on the couch, on a chair, on your bed, or in the traditional po uh, pose on a cushion with your legs crossed. 
however you feel like sitting. What's more important than the posture is the quality of attention we bring as we allow our eyes to be closed. Bring attention to the present time experience of the body sitting. Feel the contact that is made with the sitting posture. Relax any unnecessary tension in the eyes, face, jaw. Softening into the upright posture. So that we're sitting up straight, but not rigid or stiff. Relaxing into the stillness. Softening belly with each exhale. Taking a moment to establish a attitude of kindness, the intention to be compassionate with yourself, to meet your practice with friendliness, mercy, and possibly appreciation, gratitude. All of the positive qualities of a wise heart, a liberated heart. The intention to be undefended, accepting. Perhaps kindness is the most appropriate overall term. Be kind to your own mind, to your body. As much as you can, as much kindness as you have at your disposal these days, direct it towards yourself in this meditation practice. And just rest with mindfulness of the breath. No need to control the breath. 
If you can, just relax enough to let the body breathe its own rhythm. And mindfulness receives the breath, non-judgmental, present time, kind awareness of breathing, letting everything else be in the background, the sounds, the thoughts, emotions, other sensations, all present. We're giving our primary attention to the sensations that the breath creates as it enters and exits through the nostrils. Some find it helpful to note in as you breathe in, out as you exhale. Can help you stay present. The Buddha's instruction was breathing in, one knows I breathe in. Breathing out, one knows. I exhale, I breathe out. So investigate, explore, experiment with what allows you to know the breath as it comes and goes. And for now, when something takes your attention away from the breath, just acknowledge it with kindness, thinking, and come back to the breath over and over.
We're not trying to stop the mind or quiet the mind. For now, we're just trying to ignore the mind. Sometimes it will chill out a little bit. It will settle at some, for some of us. But it's okay if it doesn't, just let the thoughts be in the background. Just keep coming back to the breath over and over. If you find that it feels like you're observing the breath from your head, from your mind, try bringing the attention down, descending consciousness into the face, neck, trunk of the body. Feel the belly rising and falling with each breath. Feel the chest expanding and contracting. Being mindful of the body with the body rather than observing it from distance. Feel it, receive it. Investigate how each breath is different than the last.
if you're new to this kind of meditation practice, keep using the breath as the primary object of your attention. If you've been practicing for some time or you feel like experimenting, begin to expand from the breath to include your whole body, hands and feet, arms and legs. head and face, neck and shoulders, front and back. Feel this body sitting here with the hundreds of different sensations present, perhaps thousands. Become aware that this body is made of so many parts, skin and bones, and organs and muscles. Become aware that all of the parts of this body are made up of the four elements. as we feel all of the sensations receiving with mindfulness becomes aware that some of the sensations in the body are pleasant perhaps the contact of your hands resting in your lap just that touch often feels a bit pleasant warm Some of the sensations in the body perceived as unpleasant. Maybe the back starts to ache or your butt hurts, your knees. Pleasure and pain coexisting in the body at the same time. It's where do we place our attention? usually with what's more intense. Much of our experience in the body is neutral, neither pleasant nor unpleasant. We can also attune to the sensations that are here that are neither pleasant nor unpleasant. We incline the heart and mind towards being compassionate towards the aching back, 
sore ass, the throbbing knees, meeting our unpleasant experiences with as much tolerance and mercy and compassion as we can. This is the encouragement of kindness towards our own pain. Experiment with breathing directly into the parts that hurt and softening any tension that's formed around it. We continue to expand in this way for the sense doors, hearing, seeing, smelling, tasting. As we experience the impermanent nature of all experience in the body at the sense doors, rising and passing, coming and going. some pleasant, some unpleasant, some neutral, all impermanent. And including the heart and mind, or the heart mind, the body experiences emotion, The mind creates emotion. Just as the body experiences pleasure and pain, so does the mind. Some thoughts are quite pleasant, agreeable, enjoyable. Some thoughts are quite unpleasant, painful, disturbing. And some of the chatter in the mind is somewhat neutral. Just old memories, fantasies floating by. more we turn towards the mind, 
with an intention towards unentangled participation with the thought, the emotions. When thought or emotion is wise, is wholesome, skillful, when we pay attention to it, cultivate that wise habit of mind, kindness, of compassion, generosity, forgiveness. When the thought is unskillful, painful, anger, fear, doubt, worry, we acknowledge it without feeding it. Disengaging, unentangling ourselves from the unwholesome thoughts that naturally come and go through the mind. Pay attention in this way, mindfulness of the heart and mind, body, in order to see more clearly and learn to respond more wisely, meeting the pain with compassion, the pleasure with non-attached appreciation. Developing a wise response to the mind's often unwise tendencies, the self-centeredness, the fear, the judgments. Have mercy and compassion towards your own confused mind.
ultimately we're learning to care about ourselves more deeply, care about each other more fully. For the last couple of minutes of the practice before we end, I invite you to just place your hand over your heart, just in your solar plexus. It's a gesture of kindness towards yourself. saying to ourselves, may I be at ease just as I am in this mind, heart, body, extending this wish to each other. May you be at ease just as you are with your mind, heart, body. and extending this wish outward in all directions, sharing it with all living beings, all sentient beings. May all beings be at ease. May all beings be free from suffering. a couple more breaths as you remember that there's nobody in the world more worthy of your own love and kindness, compassion, and forgiveness than yourself. Remember your worth and remember your ability to train the heart and mind to get free, to be at ease. You can allow your eyes to be open and take a moment to stretch if you care to. jump right into my topic for tonight, which is um, 
training the heart. And I ask you to reflect for a moment. What, what is your heart? Where is your heart? Do you uh, use this phrase when you say my heart is happy or my heart is broken or my heart is confused, conflicted, or the heart feels defended, armored, frozen, wounded, all of these, uh, this term heart, what's it mean to you? I'm not asking for an answer, just a reflection. <laughs> You're because I don't know if everybody agrees with me, but I think it's pretty obvious that we're not talking about the cardiac muscle that is the physical heart. Uh, maybe some of you uh, disagree with me, I don't know, but my sense, I, I, I like to use the word heart and I wrote this whole book about, <laughs> about the heart, um, but certainly I'm not referring to, and in Buddhism we use the term heart practices and, you know, wise heart and liberated heart. And we're, we're not talking about the cardiac muscle that pumps blood through our veins. <laughs> um, my, but there is something uh, like when I asked you to put your hand on your heart, where did you put it? <laughs> did you go like really like right you know, over your left uh, breast, right where the cardiac muscle is, or did you go more central, more like sternum, more like, did anybody put their hand on their head <laughs> and say, you know, putting my hand on my heart um, or your belly maybe, I don't know, that different people perhaps locate their heart, you know, this term heart in different places. I have some sense that uh, what I'm talking about and that often what we're talking about when we say heart is um, where we experience, where we physically uh, experience emotion in the body. And it feels pretty common that there's like in this center channel, like sternum, uh, and maybe even, I feel like there's like a, um, like a chamber from the throat. You ever experience, you know, like when you get choked up and you're kind of like about to cry and there, uh, there's emotion in the throat or joy and you like want to yell or scream or like the throat feels like part of the heart to me and all the way down the sternum and into the belly, like a lot of emotion. I, I feel a lot of uh, in my stomach, you know, like the stomach is getting butterflies or the stomach is tight or 
uh, or I feel, you ever have those emotions where you feel sick to your stomach? You ever actually throw up your, like out of emotion, like that, ugh, like the stomach just gets so tight. And all of that throat, chest, belly experience connected to uh, emotional experience, that the mind is having an emotional experience and it's affecting the body in you know, either this pleasant way where the uh, chest feels warm and open and relaxed and, or it feels tight and constricted and heavy. I've had you know, experiences of grief where I felt like there was literally uh, weight on my chest, my breathing restricted, the, the mind creating this experience in the, the heart feeling suffocated, feeling compressed. And in pleasant experiences where it feels like all of a sudden there's this like expansion, this uh, broadening, this bursting. You ever feel like my heart is bursting <laughs> with joy, with elation, with gratitude. So this book, The Heart of the Revolution, is talking about emotion and that there are, uh, last week we talked about karma and positive karma and negative karma and uh, we can, uh, you know, and, and a lot of that's about actions, about what we're intentionally thinking and doing and saying. But when it comes to our experience of emotion, um, there's also the experience of what feels like positive, pleasant emotions. Uh, and, you know, there's a, the list you can, you know, what's the list of positive emotions? It's uh, loving, kind, compassionate, generous, uh, forgiving, uh, appreciative, grateful, you know, all of those emotions that come, they just feel, I just feel so grateful. I feel so appreciative. I feel so, uh, uh, feel such a sense of love or a sense of kindness. And then there's all of the, uh, what sometimes we refer to as afflictive, difficult, painful emotions, uh, anger and, you know, all of the forms of anger, anger, hatred, ill will, resentment. <laughs> like how many words do we have for being pissed? <laughs> um, being pissed. <laughs> uh, fear. And, you know, fear is an interesting one that we'll explore because there is uh, a natural fear, you know, and fear doesn't have to be necessarily negative and it's, uh, can be quite, appropriate in certain uh, scary situations. <laughs> so some fear, some anxiousness can be, and I don't wanna always categorize it as, as a negative or afflictive emotion, but often it's unpleasant. And uh, doubt,
you know, insecurity, the feelings of unworthiness, of, uh, being unlovable, all of those self-centered thoughts and emotions that we have. That I am, <laughs> I am like this, I am like that, I'm not good enough, I'm not smart enough, I'm not sexy enough, I'm not whatever it is, this uh, unworthiness narrative that so many of us have to live with, afflictive mind states. If you've been meditating for a little while and not just ignoring your mind, but uh, actually doing the full instructions of, of mindfulness and turning towards the mind as I invited us to towards the second half of the meditation tonight, you can uh, observe uh, as the instruction that I'm trying to give more regularly is to be unentangled mindfulness as an unentangled participation with what's arising in the mind. If you can really bring attention to the mind, the heart and the mind, then you can have some choice of like, how am I gonna participate with this resentment that just has, has just uh, arisen? What's the wise response to it or participation with it? Am, am I going to get into the story again? <laughs> or am I going to disengage from it? Am I going to replace it with some forgiveness. In, um, so I hope you're following, picking up what I'm laying down. Uh, the heart as the experience of mind states that create uh, experience in the body, that connection, that heart, mind connection, that mind-body connection, uh, as I said, that often is this sort of center channel, sometimes focused quite in the center of the chest. Um, in early Buddhism, in traditional early Buddhism, the Buddha, rather than constantly trying to explain, you know, the mind is like this and the emotions are like that. He just started using a term uh, that's chitta and it's C-I-T-T-A, but it sounds like C-H, chitta. And it's translated as uh, the heart mind. And it means both. And, it, and it's this understanding that part of our human experience is, is chitta is a mind that creates a physical uh, experience, feeling, emotion in the body that we call heart. Buddhist psychology teaches that the mind, our brain, mind, is the forerunner of all things that all of the emotions that we experience arise as thoughts and then affect the body. Now, it might not, on a kind of surface level, might not feel like that to you. You might feel like, nope, I feel it in my body first before I'm even aware of what's going on in my mind. First, I feel heaviness in my chest or I feel, you know, uh, but that 
upon further investigation, the more mindfulness we do, the more we start to wake up to, actually, this is happening in my brain first. My brain is giving birth to an experience in the body. So the heart-mind we are born with, the chitta that we are born with is fueled by, and I talked about this a couple weeks ago, is fueled by a, survivor in, a survival instinct that um, produces a whole bunch of afflictive emotions, a fear-based fear state and a self-centered uh, state. And uh, we're all born with that kind of mentality. And um, this is why the uh, first and second noble truth are true for everyone. It's a universal truth that uh, there is going to be some difficulty and suffering and adversity and stress. Um, and that the primary cause of that is this wiring that we're born, that our chitta is, is wired with. Uh, heart and mind wired with craving for pleasure, aversion to pain, <laughs> clinging attachment, you know, the whole, the whole shebang, the whole cause of suffering. So what the Buddha found out and what he encouraged his students and what he, you know, the, the legacy that he leaves and the, the teachings that we have is that, um, we have to train the mind. We have to train the heart. Now, this is, I think that this is important because for some reason in Western circles and spirituality, there's been this duality created that like, well, your mind is the problem, but follow your heart. You ever see that bumper sticker? <laughs> follow your heart, trust your my, and my father used to say that shit to me all the time. I'd ask him for some advice. And he'd say, well, what does your heart say? As though the heart was wise all by itself. My untrained heart. I said, well, my, you know, my heart says that, like, uh, go fuck yourself. That's what my heart says. <laughs> As though all negativity is the brain and that the heart is, is wise. Now, this is not the Buddha's teaching. The Buddha's teaching is that the untrained mind gives rise to all of these unpleasant emotions. And that in order to trust the heart, we have to train the mind, the heart-mind connected. We have to train. Make sense? I hope you're following what I'm saying. Um, that there's not like we just have this wisdom in our heart and it's only our mind that's confused. We have to train the heart and mind. This is what we're doing in mindfulness. This is what we're doing with renunciation. And uh, at one point the Buddha referred to the untrained heart mind. He said, it's like a wild monkey. And that wild monkey is swinging to the future and it's swinging to the past and it's throwing judgment and fear. And it's, it's not a wise, meditation monkey it's a, a survival instinct monkey it's a it's a you know caged monkey at the zoo throwing shit at everybody and we have, we have to, to to train that part of our human experience 
Ajahn Chah in um, one Dharma talk says, uh, he says, listening to your own heart is really very interesting. And that's sort of what I was saying, like what we're doing in meditation, when you bring mindfulness to the third foundation to the heart mind, you're listening, observing, unentangled participation. He says, listening to your own heart is really very interesting. He said, this untrained heart races around following its own habits. It jumps about excitedly, randomly, because it's never been trained. Train your heart. Buddhist meditation is about the heart. It's about developing the heart or mind, about developing your own heart. This is very, very important. Buddhism is the religion of the heart. Only this, one who practices to develop the heart is one who practices Buddhism. He goes on to say, this heart of ours lives in a cage. And what's more, there's a raging tiger in that cage. If this maverick heart of ours doesn't get what it wants, it makes trouble. You must discipline it with meditation, with concentration. This is called training the heart. At the very beginning, the foundation of practice is, is the establishing of moral discipline of sila. That's what I was talking about, the five precepts, renunciation, stop lying, stop stealing, stop killing, stop sleeping with people you shouldn't be sleeping with, stop drinking alcohol and using drugs. This discipline, the beginning of the practice is becoming ethical, becoming wise. Cecila is the training of body and speech. Training in moral discipline can lead to conflict and confusion. When you don't let yourself do what you want to do, there is conflict. The conflict here is that between wisdom, the wise heart, and defilements, the defiled heart. And it is also known as the suffering that leads to the end of suffering. Does that make sense to you? What he's saying is like, when you renounce something, but you're like suffering about like, oh, but I really want to get high. Oh, I really want that piece of cake. <laughs> but you're, I really want to flirt with that inappropriate person. But you're practicing renunciation. He says, this is the good, this is the kind of suffering, not doing what you want because it's gonna cause harm to you or someone else. He said, this is the good kind. This is the suffering that leads to the end of suffering. Where often when we indulge in some inappropriate activity, speech, action, it's the kind of suffering that just creates more negative karma, more suffering for the future. I could go on and on, but I'll leave it there. So Ajahn Chah, this is, I'm quoting from Ajahn Chah's uh, book. This book is called Food for the Heart, if people are interested in it. We did a four month course on this book last year. And it's a great book. Uh, if you haven't read it, feel free to, to take a look at it. You can download it for free actually, if you go to the uh, Amaravati website, you'll get an ebook, you could get it for free.
So how do we train our hearts? In one teaching, the Buddha says, here's how you train the heart. Abandon what is unskillful. One can abandon what is unskillful. If it were not possible, I would not ask you to do it. If abandoning that which is unskillful would cause you harm, I would not ask you to do so. But it brings benefit and happiness. Therefore, I say, abandon it. Abandon what is unskillful. And, and we already know, right? You already know all of the shit that you're suffering about. <laughs> Wouldn't it be nice if it was that easy to just, I'm just gonna abandon fear and doubt and self-centered, you know, unworthiness and I'm gonna abandon all my resentments <laughs> as if we could just like, cause ab doesn't abandon sound so like it's just a decision you make. Clearly what the Buddha is talking about is a long-term gradual training of the heart-mind where we don't indulge so much in those habits. And my own sense is what happens first is we abandon the belief in things like anger and fear and resentment and as being noble. First, you have, we have to wake up and be like, I used, to, I used to think that being angry was noble. That it was like the, there was something, I was angry at injustice and that's a good thing. I should be, you know, you see the bumper sticker? If you're not pissed off, you're not paying attention. <laughs> as though it's noble to be pissed off. Now, first we have to abandon that ignorant view and replace it with, I don't wanna be pissed off. I wanna be compassionate. I wanna pay attention. I wanna see all of the suffering, all of the ignorance, all of the injustice. And I wanna respond wisely, not with anger, not with hatred, but with love, with positive heart states, with compassionate engagement with the ignorance of the world, not just hating it, not just attacking and canceling everybody that we disagree with, <laughs> but actually having compassion and tolerance. And so here's our task. How do we abandon all of these long-term habits and also just as those of you who listen to me know, I say all of the time, it's not even your fault that you lead with craving and self-centeredness and that we all do. It's the default of having taken birth. It's just, you're just born into this self-centered, craving, aversive system, mind, body, heart system. So the Buddha is saying, okay, let's do something incredibly radical. Rather than following the, as Ajahn Chah says, the kind of dictates of the untrained heart and the, that beautiful image of the caged tiger. <laughs> Not only will it get you into all kinds of trouble, it's, it's like a caged tiger rather than just 
be kind to the caged tiger, be understanding of its uh, angry tendencies, of its lustful, uh, self-centered, be friendly, meet it with kindness, try, kill it with kindness, love it to submission, our own mind, our own heart. So he goes on and he says the opposite. Okay, we want to practice renunciation. We want to abandon indulging and believing in these negative uh, causes of suffering. He went on to say, cultivate the good. One can cultivate the good. If it were not possible, I would not ask you to do so. And I love this. Um, I love the way that he, the, the way that it's said is um, that he's that humility of like, hey, I'm not asking you to do something that's impossible. And I'm not asking you to do something that will cause you harm. I'm asking you to do something because I know from direct experience that it's possible to do and it will lead to your own benefit and welfare. Abandon the unwholesome and um, he says, if this cultivation brought about harm, I would not ask you to do it. But as this cultivation of good brings benefit and happiness, I say cultivate. So what's he talking about? What's the good? It's the, the list. It's what this whole you know, book, this whole course, this whole series is about, which is how do we cultivate compassion? How do we train the heart to be more and more compassionate? How do we cultivate generosity in the face of, you know, I don't really want to give, I want to keep, I want to get. How do we train the heart to give? How do we um, train the mind, the heart mind to be kind, to be appreciative? We're gonna go into a whole section here, this incredibly radical practice of not only appreciating what we have and our own happiness and our own successes, but the level of empathy that we can experience, which is, also for other people's happiness, to have appreciative joy, empathetic appreciation for not for others. We're looking out at the world and appreciating the successes that people are experiencing, the joys. Cultivate the good. It is possible to do so. Also equanimity and uh, forgiveness are part of these uh, heart qualities that uh, the Buddha pointed to and experienced and encourages us towards. The reality is it's not, there's no quick fix. There's no book that we can read or uh, five easy steps, you know, there's no just like, okay, I'm going to abandon. <laughs> I'm going to abandon all of that. Uh, training, wiring. Uh, and I'm going to all of a sudden 
choose to be kind, compassionate, and generous. Meditation is necessary. We, and this is the training. This is the, um, this is the long-term gradual process of engaging less and less with the negative behaviors and the negative karma producing thoughts and uh, actions. And turning our intention and our life and our uh, energy towards the long-term gradual cultivation, uncovering, recovering of goodness, of our own goodness. Now, the teaching is, and my experience and senses is that uh, there is a natural goodness in all of us. There is kindness, there is compassion, there is generosity, there is appreciation, there is equanimity. It's interesting that the four, you know, we call them heart practices, and I've heard some teachers comment on, there's four uh, Brahma Viharas, four heart qualities. Brahma means divine heart qualities, divine abodes, and there's four of them, and we call them heart practices, and um, that they happen to coincide with the four chambers of the heart, right? That we know that the cardiac muscle has four chambers, the ventricles. And um, what the Buddha said was that mindfulness, actually for him, it was enough. The, all I did was I turned towards, I brought mindfulness to my mind and I saw how my mind was creating suffering, how my heart was confused. I trained it with mindfulness. And the outcome of my mindfulness practice was positive emotions. I freed myself from the clinging, the aversion, the self-centeredness. And what, remind, what remained? Loving kindness for all sentient beings, compassion for all sentient beings, appreciative joy for all sentient beings, and equanimity for all beings. I believe, I think that what is true is that these are natural to all of us. They're innate. They're in you already. It's the question is how much access do we have to them, which is why we talk about uncovering, excavating, reconnecting, recovering this wisdom that's always been here. And the more you have the experience of uh, genuine compassion and, and loving kindness, the more you feel like a sort of deja vu or a, a resonance that's like, oh, I, I've been here. <laughs> I remember this. I lost it for most of my life or I never, I don't remember ever feeling like this. But now that I'm feeling it, it feels familiar. It feels, uh, feels right. Feels like this is, this is how we're actually supposed to feel about ourselves. We're supposed to feel loving. That all of that um, 
suffering we've been through, all of the suffering we experience, we're like intrusions. We're like intruders in the heart. And that the, the heart's true nature, the, the mind's uh, capacity is for love on a grand scale and compassion and forgiveness. Um, so each week as we go forward, um, we'll start to practice these techniques because although I do believe that uh, mindfulness will eventually take you, the kind of insight meditation, vipassana, the, the investigation that we do uh, will take us to a place of experiencing kindness and compassion. And there's also these practices that will help us get there maybe more quickly, that will train the mind perhaps more. Uh, it's skillful to do these practices. I was um, having a visit with a, uh, a Buddhist monk, um, Ajahn Analio, who's written some amazing books about mindfulness and, and these heart practices. And at one point in our, we were taking a walk and um, at one point he said, I was asking him some Dharma questions. And I said, you know, in my teaching, I, I tend to encourage people to bring mindfulness to what's happening and then to, um, uh, you know, try to intentionally respond with compassion if it's painful, intentionally respond to, to uh, engage in that way. And he said, fine to do that. He said, but my experience was just through pure mindful awareness He's, he said, it feels like there was this gradual process that happened where my heart had been covered by like a thick curtain. And the more mindfulness I did, the more that curtain got slowly um, pulled back. And what remained through mindfulness, not through saying the loving kindness phrases, any of that, he said, just through pure uh, investigative non-judgmental, you know, mindfulness, the four foundations. He said, and then loving kindness was just there. Compassion was just there. It just got revealed. This, the, the curtain just got pulled back. And I think that's so beautiful and I know that it's true. I don't know it directly because what I have did was that Early in my meditation, I thought, okay, mindfulness is working pretty good. But then my teacher said, do these loving kindness phrases. You really hate yourself and you kind of hate everybody else. <laughs> so start saying to yourself, may I be happy? May I be at ease? May I be free from suffering? And doing that over and over and over, eventually I started to feel more and more worthy of happiness, more and more worthy of um, kindness. And I started to mean it and I started to, so either way gets us to the same destination, I believe. But this book is, is based on the uh, premise that let's train the heart. Let's not just do just mindfulness. Let's do these heart practices to uncover and reconnect 
with a wise heart, with a loving heart, with a compassionate tendency that the mind has. Say one other thing and then I'll take questions, uh, some discussion. I don't know exactly what sutta this is in, so don't ask me. I've heard this more in Dharma talks and in commentary, but it's, it's said that in one sutta, sutta is the term for the earliest Buddhist teachings, um, supposed to be close to the, what the Buddha actually had to say himself. A lot of Buddhism is just based on commentaries and later developed teachings, but early Buddhism, the Theravadan suttas are supposed to be the words of the Buddha. And so in this sutta, uh, someone asks the Buddha like, okay, we're doing this loving kindness. We're doing this practice. How does it work? I'm saying over and over, I forgive you. I'm saying over and over, uh, you know, may I be happy. May all beings be at ease. I'm saying it, how does it work? And the Buddha says, well, it's as though you had a stone. This is my bell, but imagine that this is a stone. He says, as though you had a stone and you are dropping uh, drops of water in one place over and over on that stone. So like uh, every time we say, may all beings be happy, may all beings be at ease, may all beings be free from suffering, or I forgive you, please forgive you, whatever we're saying. He says, you're dropping stones. And eventually, if you do that over and over, it'll create a pathway. It'll first, it'll create a divot, and then it'll create a pathway. The Buddha understood neuroplasticity. This is our brain. That stone he was talking about is our brain. When we train the brain to uh, say good, skill, you know, kind, compassionate, forgiving, it creates a neural pathway. Those neurons fire together, they wire together, and you are training your mind to be loving to be kind, to be forgiving, to be compassionate. You're training your heart-mind by saying the phrases over and over. Okay, those are my thoughts. This is the chapter. Let's see, did I forget anything? Where are we? We're on the training the monkey, right? So all of these practices is training the monkey heart-mind. And... Um, as we go on, we'll start to really get into the practices together. This is sort of the intro still. By walking the path, by putting into practice the values and theories the Buddha taught and exemplified, by making the effort to abandon the unskillful and cultivate the good, and not just on the meditation mat, but in all aspects of our lives, we begin with the intentional aspect of meditation, the formal sitting practice, but then we spend, expand our intentionality to all aspects of our lives, including the workplace and perhaps the hardest and most important practice, our relationships. The teachings in this book that we're discussing provide an in-depth map of your heart and a guide to bringing your heart into harmony with reality. The outcome, the outcome of training your monkey will be a heart that radiates kindness, compassion, generosity, forgiveness, and love. Does it make sense? What are your experiences, questions, 
Um, are you doing these practices already? Are you seeing the benefits? Uh, if you'd like to ask a question, I see there's some things in the chat. You can uh, raise your hand at the participants bar. Um, little blue hand will go up and I'll see what questions are in the chat. Looks like just some comments. Questions about your monkey heart, your tiger in a cage, your sore knees. Or anything else you want to talk about. No. Rick, do you have a question? Yeah, well, I do. Um, Go for it. Travels in your studies. Um, did you ever come across an attempt in the in the teachings to create one noun for the heart and the mind? I know we have the heart mind term, but are there are there places in the teachings that in fact just use one noun for it? I, I, one of the things I'm wondering about is again the resistance in the practice to a notion of soul. Um, you mean other than this term chitta? Well, is Cheetah the, um, that attempt to make it one notion? Maybe. I think, maybe I think, I think it is, um, if I'm hearing your question correctly. I think that uh, Cheetah is exactly that, um, that word that means both, that there's a, a heart-mind interplay going on here, and they're totally connected. Mm -hmm. two, two separate things that are connected as opposed to one thing. You know, I actually think, I think they're one thing, but for some reason we tend to create a duality out of them. We say heart, I'm guilty of it. We say heart and mind, um, but I think that they actually are one thing. It's this, it's this human experience, <laughs> which is one thing and it's a body and part of the body is a brain as part of the body. And part of the brain's function is to make the body feel certain ways when certain thoughts, what we call emotions arise and it's completely interconnected. Um, so I don't, so maybe that isn't your question. You're talking about two separate things that, that uh, uh, a noun to explain them. I mean, in this context of heart mind, it is chitta. Yeah, I just wonder if we hadn't been inclined towards thinking of them as two separate things, if we had been born with the notion that it is as one, whether that would have served us far better. Right. I, I think so. I think, I mean, don't you, what do you think? I feel like. I suspect so. I suspect it would have served us better to realize this is, these are just thoughts. Yeah. When they feel like this in the body. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thanks, Rick. Good to see you. You. Um, Jeffrey, go for it. Jump in. Actually, I think Declan's got a question more. Oh, okay, in the 
chat, Declan, uh, what else could I do to start to decrease the criticisms towards myself and increase compassion towards self? The compassion meditation practice, we might even encourage you to start with um, forgiveness and loving kindness practice, but start to just say, like, as I was using the bowl as that, uh, you know, the, the brain, if you just start to sit regularly, even 15 minutes a day and say to your mind, I forgive you for being so critical, right? Um, I forgive I forgive the mind's critical tendencies. That'll have a big effect. And then the positive, which is, um, may I learn to meet myself with more compassion? And so it really is this brain training, this, this neuropathway training by repeating that over and over. And so you can do it on your meditation cushion, 15, 20 minutes, maybe do a whole 30 minute sit um, every day and see how it changes over the weeks and months. And then throughout your day, when you find, oh, my mind's being critical again, replace it. Like, oh, I'm, I'm judging, I'm comparing, name it. I'm criticizing, name it. And then come back to um, this experience of, I forgive you. I forgive my mind for being critical, right? Because what happens is our mind criticizes as its tendency to do, and then we hate it right? There's this sort of inner battle of like, my mind's criticizing me. And either you just believe it and you feel like, yeah, you're, you know, there's this sort of like, yeah, my mind's right. I'm a piece of shit. <laughs> or you're like, oh, fucking hate my mind. It's so critical. And there's this inner battle. But if we start to meet the mind with forgiveness, it starts to soothe that inner criticism. And we start replacing it with, may I be at ease and so that, that angle, and then the other angle is the more we do mindfulness and this quality of uh, unentangled observation, the time will come where you're mindful and your mind is being critical and you're just aware of it. Oh, just critical thoughts, just critical thoughts arising and passing. That's not self, that's not who I am. It's just my mind's habits. And it won't hook you so much because you'll see them as, uh, that category of unwholesome, we abandon them. We abandon them by not believing them, by not getting hooked into them, just allowing those thoughts, uh, criticism arising and passing. <laughs> so do the forgiveness, do the loving kindness practice and make room for it. Know that it's just what the mind does. Hope that's helpful, Declan. Jeffrey, go ahead, jump in. Yeah, thanks. I just wanted to share this relevant thought for whoever might benefit from it. But I don't know, it's kind of like I feel like I want to testify to that, you know, late lately, this past year, and definitely this past couple of months, I have been noticing that more and more. If I'm getting carried away with an emotion or uh, I, I'm engaging or about to engage in a behavior that's maybe not so skillful, very quickly now, I am seeing it from almost a third person point of view and able to not only notice the contrary voice in my mind or the maybe the wise voice in my mind, but actually now to listen to it uh, with enough time to spare before I do the stupid thing or say the stupid thing. Uh, so it's true, the, the neural pathways uh, do form. It only took me 20 years to get here. <laughs> 
<laughs> it does take, you know, it just takes some long, you know, and this is, I think we lose so many people give up because it's not, it's like, yeah, well, I tried that and it didn't work. And it's like, well, try it every day for two years. Try it for like, what do you got to lose? Like really go all in with these practices that will transform your relationship to your mind. Um, but of course it's gonna take some time. It's gonna take some, yeah, you're gonna get some immediate results too, but it's gonna take some months and years, perhaps decades to really embody the ability to consistently respond wisely. Um, Richard, uh, wait, Richard, before you go, give me a moment. Let me look at the other question in the chat. Uh, Lee is saying, wonder if you could speak about your personal experience with boredom a bit. Like is getting bored of the repetition of the loving kindness phrases natural? I 1000% see and feel the difference in my heart. The more I repeat the phrases, the more they come up in situations and teach me to be that way. But I get bored and I don't want to repeat them. Is this boredom something we must learn to endure? Um, Probably the answer is yes, Lee. <laughs> we have to learn to endure it. And maybe it's actually a phase. Because um, my experience in you know 30 years of, of doing it is that I don't feel bored of it. It feels just like really quite um, natural. Like it's like a, uh, like a friendly, internal, um, I don't know, like my favorite, uh, sweatshirt or something it's like they're comfortable uh to say over and over and i keep saying them over and over that having been said here's the suggestion i'll give you lee change them up change them a little bit change them up a little bit so that it's not exactly the same there, i say in the book and i'll say over and over we don't have to become like um fundamentalists about what words we say. The spirit of saying kind, compassionate, forgiving things to ourselves in our meditation, to others, to training the mind, it's the spirit of it. Much more important than, well, this is the traditional phrase. So change it up. You know, if happy, ease, free is getting a bit boring, uh, change it up. May all beings be content. May all beings be, you know, uh, what, you know, like change it up, find your own words um, or listen to some other teachers, borrow some other people's phrases and um, make them your own or like, you know, start doing them backwards. Like if you've been saying, may all beings be happy and may all beings be at ease, may all beings be free, switch it up and start going backwards. May all beings be free from suffering. May all beings be happy. May all beings be at ease. Just to kind of give your mind a new sequence. So you can play with the phrases. Uh, and if nothing works, persevere. It's okay to be bored. <laughs> Maybe you've heard me say before, one of my first teachers, uh, I was complaining about being a bit bored in meditation. And he said, well, if you can't be bored, you can't be Buddhist. <laughs> You're just going to have to figure out how to be bored and, uh, and keep going anyways. 
Okay. Um, thank you. I hope that was helpful. Richard, last question. Good. Thank you, Noah. I, before I have my question, I wanted to say the heart practices have meant so much to me. I have felt the change in my life for doing them. So wanted to thank you for bringing them to our attention. One thing I've noticed with the heart practices is that they have helped me relate to my heart as an organ of perception. I'm more now able to see suffering. I'm not blocking it from my, from my perception and I can respond to it more directly without fear. So that's been a big change in my life. The question I had, which I wrote up on the, on the chat line also is a little theoretical. It has to do with evolution of the species, human species, is that if there is a core of goodness in the human species, but yet we are programmed in our brain for self-survival and all of that infers, why is it that there's not been sort of a natural evolutionary pathway to the emergence of this goodness? And why do we have to have these special practices to, to bring it out? Right. Um, I think we need a few thousand more years of human beings meditating on mass scales <laughs> for that uh, evolutionary biology to take place. Uh, I don't know if you've ever heard me say, Richard, uh, my friend Wes Nisker, one of the Dharma teachers I used to hang out with, uh, who did a lot, a lot of, you know Wes, uh, who did a lot of um, stuff around biological evolution. He has this sort of, you know, joke. He says, um, you know, we look back at the, you know, cavemen and women and cave people. <laughs> and, you know, of like, they're so excited about the wheel. Like, oh, we created a wheel or fire or whatever, you know, <laughs> that we just take for granted now, right? Like we just take it for granted. Wheels and fire and stuff. Um, he says, you know, sometime we will continue to evolve. Perhaps we will. So exactly what you're saying, that maybe in a thousand years, our, you know, ancestors, you know, I know this is, uh, if the planet still uh, can support human life, that is. <laughs> uh, but let's just say we figure it out and, you know, we don't completely wipe in. And, and uh, you know, there's some human that will look back on, you know, the 20 first century, 22nd, you know, we'll look back at, at, at this generation, at this age, and be like, why are they sitting there with their legs crossed trying to be mindful and trying to be kind? Because perhaps it will evolve uh, into a place where people are have more natural access to kindness and more natural, but we're just not there yet. You know, we're only a few million years away from, uh, you know, our kind of fighting for our lives, survival, uh, even though it's been comfortable for humans on some level and some humans for a long time, um, we're still in that fight or flight default. So maybe I'm drawing an inference, which I'm not sure you're meaning, but I'm drawing an inference that maybe by doing these practices, we're riding a wave of evolution. We're sort of like trying to do like an advanced uh, guard to bring on this evolution. And maybe there's something about a critical mass or the hundredth monkey phenomena, whatever you want to call it for the planet. If enough people do this, maybe it'll, it'll shift something. Maybe. I have no. no fucking idea, but I like the idea of that. And we're seeing, you know, this phenomena that we're seeing in America with millions and millions of people meditating who aren't Buddhists, right? It's just became 
psychology and medicine and you know they they you know Cabot Zinn did such a good job at secularizing it mm-hmm. and then you know unfortunately people have figured out that they could monetize it and now it's like the thing like everybody meditates <laughs> which is fucking great i mean i'm watching you know showtime shows and everybody's got a meditation app going on while they're killing each other and you know whatever they're doing but it has infiltrated you know our culture in an, an amazing way um so let's hope so you know i mean there's a whole nother conversation about the watering down of the dharma and the level of meditation that people are doing isn't necessarily liberation meditation but at least people are starting to pay attention thank you yeah okay i'm going to leave it there for tonight um next week what's the preview the next week is um inspired to revolt faith not what we believe but what gets us motivated to act so next week i'm going to talk about um, this chapter on faith and developing a verified confidence in these practices and um, i hope you join me next week class is done by donation please support against the stream we are a non-profit organization Uh, Even though we've been on uh, stay-at-home lockdown, I'm still paying rent. You are still paying rent on the meditation center through your donations. So um, please be very generous. Uh, We suggest a $15 donation for the class, for the weekly Zoom class. If you can give $15, please do. It really helps us stay afloat. Uh, So many meditation centers have closed, yoga centers, everybody's shutting down because uh, it's so hard to continue to pay rent when you're not actually using the space for that. Um, I'm committed to staying open and for Against the Stream to continue to have a meditation center and we will do that through your generosity. So please, if you can, please, um, there is a link in the chat to the website. Um, It's up a little bit. You might have to look for it a little bit. Um, Rachel posted a a link. Um, And if you can, check out the website, the donation page. Consider becoming a monthly supporter to help us uh, continue this Dharma work. Many goodness that comes from our practice and discussion of the Buddha's Dharma be shared outward in all directions with all sentient beings. Thank you for your consideration of these teachings. Do as you see fit. See you soon. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast. This is Noah Levine, founder of Against the Stream and Refuge Recovery. If you feel moved to leave a donation, there's a link in the show notes.